Well, good morning, Fellowship family. It's great to have you here with us on this transitional weekend. I always say on this weekend, Merry Thanksgiving. Because you don't know whether to celebrate Christmas or still have leftovers from Thanksgiving. So I'm really glad that you're here. Uh, I am so thankful. I was just counting some of the things that I'm thankful for. My heart is really full. Think about this, folks. Yurish Road is completed. Can we get an amen? You know how hard it was to preach to you every week when Yurish Road was under construction? I would fill you with the Holy Spirit. And then you would leave here and you would think things that people far from God think. At 10th and Wanamaker, right? So we are thankful that roads get completed here eventually in Topeka. I'm also thankful for you, my church family. We had 27 children dedicated this weekend. That is awesome. And I love to see it when a family wants to center their family around Christ. And uh, really, if you think about it, families have far more time to nurture a relationship with Christ than we here at church do. We get an hour, hour and a half a week And you get all of life, the good and the bad, the messy times, the times where it's easy to trust God and times where it's very difficult to trust God. The family is the place that God uses to nurture a a relationship with him. So thank you, families, for dedicating your children. I'm also thankful for this month. Think about this. This month here at Fellowship Bible Church, we had 162 baptisms. 162. I don't know... I don't know of a better month uh, here at Fellowship of people going public with their faith and saying, no, I'm with Jesus on this one. What he did was for me, and I want to publicly proclaim that. It was just such an emotional time for me as we finished up rooted in that 10-week experience with all those people. We had 10 baptism tanks on that celebration evening. And I just want to invite you that if you haven't yet gone through rooted, we're going to launch it again in January for anyone who is unable to go through it with us this fall. Maybe this, maybe this fall was crazy with sports or with recitals or whatever else happens in your life, but maybe this coming January, when we launch it, we believe there's just as many people who haven't gone through it, if not more, than who did go through it. And so we want to offer it again. It's kind of that first step into a discipleship relationship with our church getting connected to God and his word. And here's what I've learned. If you humble yourself to this process and just take that next step with Jesus, he's going to grow you in a deeper relationship with him. So if you haven't yet done that, just plan on those 10 weeks and we'll give you more information as this spring approaches to go through Rooted. Another thing I'm thankful for, just the opportunities we have as a church family. Uh, This coming Christmas, as we approach it, we're going to be taking a special Christmas offering and it's going to cover two major expansion projects for us here at church. One of is a new uh, church plant here in Topeka in the High Crest neighborhood. We've been involved there for five years, and we just hired a pastor to do that. His name is Jonathan Sublett. He's from Houston. He and his wife are going to be moving here. We're going to actually introduce he and his wife and his family to you the middle of December. They're going to be coming for a weekend and we want to introduce them to you, but you can be praying for them. They are in the process of adopting 
three little children, a set of twins that are two-year-old and a one-year-old. How about that? So they're going to experience great chaos as they transition up here in Topeka. And we're going to be a family that gathers around them. I know he's going to sharpen us as a church family in providing leadership in that church. And uh, he's a man we believe. Here's what really convinced me. When, when I said, Jonathan, why do you want to do this? Why would you come to Topeka and plant a church? He says, I want to go to people no one else wants to go to, to love people no one else wants to love. And I thought, man, you're hired. You're hired. Okay. Um, so I hope you'll pray for Jonathan as he comes. But a major portion of our Christmas offering is going to go to plant that church. There's a tremendous amount of resources that go in, especially launching resources to help provide that. And the other thing is a ministry project beyond us. And it's going to be taking place in the Philippines. We're going to actually be a part of translating the scriptures, the Bible into a, a language that people don't have the Bible in their language in the Philippines. And so a portion of our Christmas offering is going to fund that. Right now, as we partner with Wycliffe or Wycliffe uh, Bible translators, they can do this process in six months. And so we'll be able to present that to that, pe- to a, that people group in the Philippines. And here's why that's important. Uh, you can go, well, why don't we just teach them English? We've got the Bible in English. And we could do that. But it makes a statement. It makes a statement like, ours the language. In order to meet God, you've got to learn. And what us translating the scriptures into says God's concerned about you and your culture and your people. And he loves you and he'll speak your language. He knows it already. He's just letting us know what it's like. And so when we do that, it's really going to be a blessing. And so, and I encourage you in these two projects, we're going to be more aggressive in our Christmas project here. We're going to ask you to give as much as you possibly can over and above what you normally give here to make these projects happen as we celebrate the birth of Christ. I was able to go to Washington DC this past week and I went to the opening of the museum of the Bible and uh, it's this major museum. It's the largest privately funded museum uh, in, in, the, in, the, in the country right now. It's the largest opening of that. And so as we went, uh, Cheryl and I and another couple here at Fellowship went for the grand opening. They have an exhibit in that Museum of the Bible that has all the different uh, languages of the Bible in the world on one side of the wall and on the other side of the wall were all of the languages yet to be translated the scriptures into. And they're about equal right now. So this next year, I'm going to go back to the Museum of the Bible, and I'm going to take one of those languages, and I'm going to go and put it on the other side if we give generously to this project. So why would we do this? Why would we give beyond ourselves? Why would we choose to hold back spending it all on us to give more to the Lord to advance his kingdom? It's because we love him, right? Because he first loved us. And because that whole pattern of a follower of Jesus is that we love others and give ourselves up, give up even rights and privileges that we could spend on ourselves to, to make it more about Jesus and our lives more about Jesus than ourselves. That's what we're going to be focusing on these next several weeks as we approach Christmas, as we're going to be looking at the significance of God taking on flesh. I mean, think about that. This is a supernatural concept. God taking on flesh and living for us, dying for us, and raising from the dead for us. In John, when John introduces Jesus in John 1.14, he says, and the word being Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. We're going to be dissecting that verse in John chapter 1 verse 12. This is going to be the slowest, slowest 
series of going through one verse over five messages. How's that? So we're really going to go in the lab and, and, and uh, dissect this passage. This week, I want to introduce this whole concept to you. Uh, because as we do that, we want to look at what is the incarnation and why is it so significant? And as I think through that, the incarnation is God's grand invitation to our grave situation. We're going to be looking at those two phrases tonight and how the scriptures kind of reveal our grave situation that God comes into in the person of Christ and gives us a grand invitation. That's what the incarnation was all about. And you know, as you think about what, you know, who Jesus is and how, how he, you know, came into this world, John uses the term light. In him was light, and the light was the life of men. And as you look at this, where did he get this from? Well, way back, 700 years before Christ was born, and 300 years after David reigned, you have the prophet Isaiah. And he has a whole book in the Old Testament of, of these predictive prophecies of what would happen to Judah if they continue to walk away from the Lord. But ultimately, God's faithful love that God kept God coming back to his people. And he gives a comforting voice, even in the midst of their kind of walking away from God in Isaiah 9. Look what it says this. He says in Isaiah 9, verses 2 and 3, he says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And he develops this, that this light is actually the Messiah who would come. And he kind of opens up who the Messiah is in verses 6 and 7. He says this. this is, you may recognize this. Handel's Messiah just sings it. But it says, he says this. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And the throne of, of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish this or will do this. I love this last phrase, the zeal of the Lord will do this because it just shows us the heart of who God is. God is zealous. In other words, he's passionately intentional about showing the light of Jesus to his people. It's that whole picture of God dawning a new light. If we could take the Hebrew and look at it, the Hebrew here and the, the light has come, it literally means the light has flashed, that there's a huge picture of darkness in this world. John introduces Jesus in John chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, that's where we're going to spend the rest of our time. Open it up to John chapter 1. In John chapter 1, Jesus is introduced by John as the Word. He starts out in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And then he goes on and talks about that Jesus was the light and the light shines in darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. And that then he develops this in John chapter one, verse nine. He says, the true light, which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Let's look at this because it shows us our grave situation. And the Bible does that. It tells us, God, because God does that. He shows us who we are 
And he shows us the darkness in the world, but he doesn't leave us damned or doomed. He shines light into that darkness. And so there's hope. Biblical Christianity does not ignore evil or brokenness in the world and even in us. But it shows a light of hope of what God did in spite of our darkness. What God does into our darkness in this world to bring us back to himself. And there's two things that I want you to think about when you think about darkness in this world. Because darkness is developed in the scriptures. It has a reference to, it's a figure for evil and ignorance. Did you realize you still do that when you think about that term dark? Like when you're having a conversation and someone goes dark... They talk about something evil or they make a statement and you go, oh man, that was really dark. You might as well say that was really evil. <laughs> okay. Cause it's a whole picture of that's a alternative to reality or alternative of what is good. But there's another aspect of ignorance that refers to darkness. And that is like when you're in the dark, it means you don't know, right? You need the light to dawn on you. Yeah, I I have an idea. Before I was in the dark, now I'm in the light. Those are biblical phrases that our culture has taken on to describe evil or ignorance. And it's to the evil world and to the world who did not know God that God showed up and said, I am the righteous God and I am the God who shows you and reveals who you are and who I am to you. So let's look at this grave situation, two elements of it. The first, as we look at the situation in the world, the Bible says that we are in darkness, in sin. And this darkness and sin is kind of like physical darkness. And as we even look in our world today, if you look outside, we're coming up on December 21st, which is the shortest daylight hour day in our year. And what happens, there's something like a, like an affective disorder that happens to many of us. We get depressed in January, right? Because the days are short. And if you trace that out, there's places in Alaska or even in Russia where people don't get a lot of sunlight in the winter and they get really dark. They get really depressed. And so alcoholism just skyrockets because they self-medicate in their depression. And that there's, there's, so there's this longing for light in all of us. We like the light. We would like the physical light to be, you know, I like it. It's great. And, and so what we do around Christmas when the nights are shorter is we put up Christmas lights and they bring kind of hope to this world. They kind of show a picture of, oh, isn't that cool? And we drive at night and the darkness, when a light shines in darkness, we go, oh, that's beautiful or that's pretty or whatever you want to say when you look at that personally for me uh, my garage lights went out this past week and they're all they were all fluorescent and they all the ballasts went out so i'd turn them on and nothing happened i'd be so frustrated so yesterday i went to home depot and i if you work for lowe's i shop both equally depending on the sale Um, but i went and got some led lights and i think the lord invented led because they save electricity, they last longer. It said it has 50,000 hours. I thought, wow, I hope I live that long. And so I hung these lights. And usually when I'm doing a project around the house, my wife, you know, is kind of nervous. 
because I'm insecure when I'm doing projects like that. And so I say and to myself things that a pastor shouldn't say to himself at that time. But here I am struggling with this, and I finally get it wired, and I go to turn on the light, and it, it came on, and my whole life erupted in Handel's Messiah. And it was a beautiful moment. Because we do that. There's this expectation in the darkness that we can turn on the light. And and yes, light happens. That's expectation in darkness. That there would be light. Do you know that there's there's an expectation in you? That in your darkness, the God who created you would shine light? It's that longing to be known. It's that longing to be loved. It's that longing to be shown who God is. I think all of humanity has that. And we can look for other areas to fill it. But God has come in the person of Christ to reveal light and darkness. And you know, as we look at the world that Jesus was born into, it was dark. It was dark. His name was Herod the Great, and he was the leader of the land at that time. When Herod went to Rome, he stored his family up on this high mountain uh, called Masada. And that's where he hid them so that they would be safe while he went to Rome and fled for the throne of that whole Judean area. And Rome said, you will be called king of the Jews. And he came back with that title. I am king of the Jews. So here is this extremely powerful ruler, but he was also extremely insecure. And whenever you have lots of power and lots of insecurity, you're going to have problems. You're going to have the abuse of power. You're going to have injustice. You're going to have the exploitation of people. You're going to have people just run over and people tried and found guilty who aren't guilty. And, and so that was going to be the world. And that, and therefore, into this dark world, the wise men came and said to Herod the Great, who is this who's born king of the Jews? And he went, wait a minute. That's my title. I'm the king of the Jews. And so in his insecurity, he goes and he has all the little boys around Bethlehem, which at that time had a population, probably around 400 people. But he had all the little boys in that region killed because he didn't want any threat. Now think about this. This is not a, this is a dark story. Now we, we kind of put the nativity scene up and we oh my goodness, and we put, you know, the light on Jesus and everything's great, but it looks so peaceful, silent night. All is calm, all is, no, it was dark. It was a dark world into which Jesus was born and it was in that world that the light of Jesus was shown. We look at our world today. Is it any better? Now look at the world around us. It's dark. Look at our city. You know, some things were shared with me by different organizations that work to make a difference in Topeka this year. And especially with sex trafficking that's happening here in Topeka. Slaves, literally. Women as sex slaves here in Topeka. That when I heard about the depth of that, I literally, it was a, (gasps) I mean, it took all the air out of me that that's happening right here in Topeka. The world is dark. But it's not just the world in Topeka. It's the world of my life. It's If we look in the mirror 
And we look at the darkness within, there's something broken. It's that something broken that wants to take our own lives and put it in our own direction, that wants to ignore God and his will and his way for us and go our own way. It's that darkness. And you, some of us don't know it until you try to be good. It's kind of like you don't know how selfish you are until you try to love your spouse. <laughs> yeah, marriage kind of shows you that. It's the awakening moment that this woman or this man that you said you would love and all of a sudden you realize who they really are. They, they played pretty well while you were dating, but now they are. They just are. And you have to make the choice to give up yourself to love them in their weakness. That's the reality of the darkness of sin. How is this resolved? Because our world looks at this type time of year and says, oh, there's hope. There's hope. It's all within us. If we just do these things or thinks these things, we can make a better difference in this world. The world is dark, but we can make it better. And so we look at things like politics and we say, if our party was in the White House or was in, uh, in these branches and we passed the laws, this world would be a brighter place. Or, or if we looked at, at, uh, even, you know, medical progress and said, if we could cure this, everything would be bright here in the world. Or if it's the economy, stupid. So if everyone just made more money, our lives would be better. And my goodness, as you look at that, isn't that just twisted? Do we really? We've never lived in a time where we've had more, and yet we felt like we've had so little. And you know that because your email is just getting filled up with the next solicitation for Black Friday on its last day, or Cyber Monday coming up tomorrow. I mean, during the course of what I'm speaking, you'll probably have 20 emails for different things to get you to spend more money, because if you just had it, your life would be better And others of us just think our society needs to be different. If we just did this and this, everything would be better. And although sometimes those things can work and sometimes they can make a difference and God has asked us to make a difference in those areas, it does not deal with the root of darkness in us and around us. Only Jesus can shine light, the true light in our darkness. We need Jesus. We need him for the darkness of sin. But there's another area of situation, and that's the rejection of God. Look what it says in that passage. It says, although the world was created by him, the world did not know him. And then verse 11, he came to his own people, but his own people did not receive him. That's rejection of God. And that's part of that picture of the situation in our world. We'd like to think that if God showed up in the person of Jesus, if he just came down on this earth and appeared, light would shine. We'd all go, oh, yes, you exist. Everything I believed is right. And we make that thing, of course, we'll follow you. And all we need Jesus is to show up so we can touch him. We can talk to him. We can, you know, eat with him. We can just have him in our lives. Then we would all believe him and receive him. And folks, he did that. He did that. He did that 2,000 years ago. And he showed up and he even came to his own people, the Jewish people, and he spoke their language and he understood the same scriptures that God gave them. But they did not receive him because there's something dark within that only Jesus can turn. And that's called our hearts. Only Jesus can turn our hearts towards him. And so whether it's the darkness of sin or our own rejection, we need Jesus. And, and that's why we, he accepted us when he, when we rejected him. He loved us. He endured through that. 
And so that's the situation in the world. It's a grave situation. Now, when I think about a grave situation, I think about the Titanic. You know, here it is. You may know this story. In April 14th, 1912, the Titanic built the unsinkable ship hits this iceberg on its maiden voyage from Southampton, England, all the way to New York City. And uh, probably halfway there, it hits this iceberg and it tears right into the hull. And within two and a half hours, the ship was completely sunk. Now, there were 2,276 people on board and there were 20 lifeboats on board. 20 lifeboats could hold around 1,100 people. Think about that. They didn't want lifeboats on board the Titanic, so they reduced the number so people could have a better view outside their cabins. Think about that. So they never thought it would sink. So they cut down on the lifeboat. They had never thought there'd be a situation where they'd be threatened. So they... They reduced it down to 20. Now, every one of those 20 boats was lowered into the water. And they were filled with women and children first. And because the emphasis was on women and children first, very few men survived that because they just got them down into the water as quickly as they could. And only women and children, far more men, perished on the Titanic than women and children. And so these 20 lifeboats, once they hit the water, they all made a decision. It's interesting as the survivors were interviewed. As soon as they hit the water, they all made a decision. Do we stick around and pick up people who are in the water? The water was so cold that exposure would happen within minutes of other of people hitting the water. So they had life jackets and they were floating and they were yelling and screaming for help. But these lifeboats said no. Pretty much every one of these lifeboats said No, we're saving ourselves. And they had a moment where they all voted. And they said, let's just paddle away. Every one of those 20 lifeboats paddled away when they saw the grave situation of people dying around them, except one, lifeboat four. Lifeboat four, when it was lowered into the water, had 40 people. And as it was lowered in, they started the immediately, the steward on board said, we are going to save people. And immediately they started plucking people out of the water. Now, out of those people they plucked out of the water, two did die later on of exposure, but they were dedicated to pulling people out of the water and into the boat. At 8 a.m., when the RMS Carpathia showed up to rescue lifeboat four, as they watched and they did see the whole Titanic sink as the band played on, and they were rescued at 8 in the morning by the Carpathia and brought to safety. 1,512 people died in the sinking of the Titanic. Only 700 or so people were saved. And 20 lifeboats. But one went back. One went back. And they were, they, they were rescued. Now think about what happens there. They kind of give us a picture of what the incarnation was. Because when they saw the grave situation, they said they took compassion. They didn't take selfishness and their own lives as more important and roll away. That gives us a picture of what God did in our grave situation. Because he sees what we see even to a greater depth, and he chooses to have compassion on us. He comes into our grave situation and offers us a grand invitation. 
Let's take a look at that grand invitation uh, in, in verse 12 of John chapter 1. He says this. Remember where we read earlier that the world did not know him and that he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. Look at verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Let's dissect this a little bit because here in here we get this picture of what is this grand invitation of the incarnation. There's three things I want you to remember. First one is this, is this is an invitation to everyone, to everyone. Look what that passage says and underline this word, but to all, underline all, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name. The gospel invitation through the incarnation is that whoever believes on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is an invitation to everyone, not just people who look like you or act like you or believe like you or vote like you or talk like you or even have the same values as you. This is God's open invitation. It shows us the depth of God's love for humanity. For God so loved the world That's a, take that line and just go around the circumference of the world and you will find the depth of God's love. It's to all. It's to everyone. No one is excluded. God does not look at at this world and go, okay, those people I will not save. Those people I will not save. Matter of fact, the whole heart of God is for all nations. Every nation, tribe, and language to receive an invitation to Christ to call out to the end of the earth. That's the invitation. It's to everyone. So no one here is excluded from this. But what are we called into? And by the way, a lot of people view biblical Christianity as exclusive, when yet we realize, when we really look at it and examine the scriptures, we find that it's an invitation to everyone. No one's excluded from this. If it's an invitation to everyone to believe and receive... Look at that passage again, verse 12. It says, but to all who have received, who believed in his name. That's a faith statement. I I remember when I was baptized, and I was baptized in a Baptist church when I was growing up. And man, I think about all the different churches that have influenced me. I've been Baptist. I've been, there was a point in college when I was Mennonite. And then I was Bible church. Then I was Presbyterian. And now I'm back in the non-denominational world. Okay. But I remember when I was baptized by a Baptist, uh, baptized by a Baptist pastor. And he said, Joey, don't call me that by way. Joey, what is your verse of assurance? How do you know you're safe? And that was John 1 12. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That's how I know. It's because God gave me the right to do that through Christ. But it's an invitation to believe. And what do you believe when you believe Jesus? You believe, number one, that you need to be saved. That means you recognize your sin, that there's a darkness within that you can't take care of. Some people think, if I was just better, I would be good enough. But that God never compares you with people around you. Because when when you're in that realm of performance-based faith... You're always looking for the people around you. I'm not as bad as that person. 
I'm not as bad as that. And as long as I'm better than they are, I'm not that bad. As long as I know more of scripture than she does or he does, I'm not that bad of Christian. And not that bad of Christian is still not good enough. We have to be perfect. And only Jesus can make us perfect. So he lived for us. He lived a perfect life. He died a final death for our sins. So when Jesus died, God said, it's finished. Payment's full. The, the, he, the Greek word for that is tetelestai, which means paid in full. God stamped that on our lives through Christ. And then he rose from the dead on the third day. So what our call is not for you to be better or to keep trying. It's for you to rest in God, to turn from your sin in your way, to trust and follow God and however he's going to lead you. And that's to everyone in this room. I believe that no one's here by accident. God has placed everyone in this room to hear this message. He loves you. He's lived for you. He died for you and he rose for you to save you from your sin and call you to a new life. You can turn from that sin, from your way of trying harder and you can trust Jesus. That's that faith decision. I would encourage you just make that faith decision right now. Just say, I get it. I didn't before because I kind of came in here thinking I had to be good enough and no one can be good enough. That's why Jesus was great enough for me and I trust him. And once you follow him, then he's going to then give you the right to become. And that's that whole picture of, of that invitation of God, not just to save you, but to sanctify you, to set you apart, to be a part of his family. Here it gives you the term a child of God. Do you know as a follower of Jesus, if you've made your faith statement about Jesus, that you are God's child, you're in his family. And I would just say that is your number one identity. You know, you can get wrapped up in a lot of different, different identities in your world. There was a time I was, I, I found my identity in raising three boys and I loved these boys and I wanted to live my life through these boys. They had opportunities I didn't necessarily have. Some of them were accepted far more than I was growing up. And so I'd look at them and have so much pride. And yet when they would make a, a mistake or have a failure, I'd feel like it was all my fault. And we can get wrapped up in the identity of our kids, can't we? I've seen couples get wrapped up in marriages and find their whole identity based on their spouse's acceptance or rejection of them. I've seen people get wrapped up in their identity in ministry and be far more concerned about the accolades and applause of their congregation than they have about who they are as a child of God. Here's why it's important that our primary identity is a child of God. Because when we live as God's children, it humbles us to really look to our Heavenly Father and follow His lead. It doesn't make us feel like we're anything special, like we earned or deserve this, that I'm better than anyone else. And it allows us to humbly just be His kids and love Him with our first and our best. And when I love God with my first and best, I tend to love my wife the way He loves her. And she sees a greater picture of who God is because I'm loving her the way God loves her. When I love my kids the way God loves them, I realize they're gifts from God. They're here in my home and then they will leave my home and they will live their own lives. And it brings me great joy when they're following the Lord outside of our home. 
And especially with ministry, man, that's my fourth calling. It's not my first calling. I'm called to be a child of God at first. Because there's only one heavenly father I've been given. And there's only one wife that I've been given. And I'm the only father my kids have. Those are indispensable roles. You guys could find another pastor to lead this church if anything happened to me. But mom, the only husband my wife has. I'm the only father. My, I'm the only son. I mean, my, my heavenly father's is the only one in my life. So we want to be people that know that identity. Secondly, that identity should also be a priority. In other words, far more than having people accept us or people respect us or to have people admire us, we need to look to the pleasure of our Heavenly Father. And as His children, we need to bring glory to our Heavenly Father. In other words, we need to make Him greater than we make ourselves to be. That's what it means to become and to be that child of God, to live in that. So what's our response? Let me just close with this. Our response, number one, if you realize the darkness of sin and the rejection of God that you've had in your life, the call is for you to believe and receive. Everyone who believes in Christ will receive eternal life and a part of being a part of the family of God. Secondly, if you have believed in Christ and you are a child of God, then walk in the light as he is in the light. Walk in the light of Jesus. And what that means, if we just go back to the titles that Isaiah gave Jesus when he introduces him 700 years before Jesus was born, he says, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. um, Wonderful counselor. When do you need a counselor? When you don't know what to do. When you don't know where to turn. Do you turn to Jesus? Is he your first thought or is he your last resort? When you walk in the light, you seek out God in his word and you seek his wisdom in his way for you. Mighty God. Is Jesus someone you depend on? Really? I mean, depend on. Not as your last resort. When there's nothing left to do, pray. That's hogwash. That ought to be your first thing. Is he the one you're depending on? Not just for salvation, but for your next idea, for your next breath, for your next word, for your next action. He's called to be our mighty God. He's the one who created us. He's the one who sustains us. Is he your everlasting father? No matter how messed up Thanksgiving was for your family, and there are some of you who have messed up families, You have an everlasting father. And he is one who is not just for this life, but for eternity. And he's someone who can lead you. Are you living as his child? And is he your prince of peace? Is he someone who pronounces peace in your relationship with God? You no longer have to ask, have I been good enough? Or am I still in? You have that assurance that Jesus pronounces peace. Is he your peace in other relationships? Are you someone who's a peacemaker? When you walk in the light, then peace is going to be something that comes out of your life. You're going to pursue whatever it takes as far as you can to live at peace with everyone. And then is he your peace within? I mean, you're marketed to. At this time of year, there's a feeling of anxiety and discontentment. Is Jesus your peace? He came to this world to declare peace to those who were near and those who were far away. Find Jesus as your Prince of Peace. 
Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. It doesn't just remind us who you are. It reminds us who we are. And through Christ, as your children, may we be people who are willing to walk and live in the light as you are in the light. Heavenly Father, guide our thoughts and our hearts and our lives and our actions in the light of Jesus as we find him and we follow him in this celebration of Christmas. It's in the name of Jesus and for his glory that we pray. Amen.